Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Good morning. So when I was growing up, before my now six foot eight baby brother had gotten that much bigger than me, I had the upper hand when we would fight each other. In the summertime in Virginia, when there wasn't enough watermelon or swimming pools to keep our cranky, sweaty bodies from finding something to bicker over, be it TV remotes or the front seat of the car, I would always win. And sometimes when we would fight, we would end up on the opposite sides of a wooden bedroom door. One of us wanting to get at the other one, not entirely sure what we would do once we reached them. We would lean our shoulders against the door, twisting the handle as hard as we could, trying to force it open. And sometimes my little brother would be on the inside of the door as I pushed all my weight against it, blocking him in. He was smaller than me then, and no amount of him twisting the handle and pushing with all his might would free him from his room. It was not until I got bored or our mom came to break up the argument that the door would finally open again and his frenzied, angry body would run out of the room. Even as children, we knew how painful it was to be locked in a room, unable to get out. When you walk into a medium security correctional facility in Massachusetts, there are no wooden bedroom doors with faded gold painted doorknobs. Instead, six heavy metal doors three sliding steel sally ports, three razor wire topped chain link fences, a metal detector, a fingerprint scanner, and two or three very angry German shepherds separate those who are incarcerated from the rest of the world. The doors are a lot thicker, more secure, but the message is the same no amount of you pushing with all your weight will open the door. You're locked in that room, unable to get out until the state of Massachusetts gets bored with you, or in the case of far too many people who are incarcerated here while awaiting their trials, your mom comes through with the bail money to get you out. There are currently around 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States, with another 4.8 million under correctional control, so either on probation or on parole. That's close to 7 million people whose freedom has been systematically taken away. So I've been spending my summer with 1,200 of these men, 
learning their stories and listening to their pain, bearing witness to the unimaginable suffering of incarceration. Some of these men are probably innocent. Many have yet to stand trial or accept plea deals. Many have committed terrible crimes. And all of them share the shame and despair of isolation. In his 2017 Ware Lecture at our Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly in New Orleans this year, Brian Stevenson, a lawyer and advocate for those incarcerated on death row, particularly in the South, called Unitarian Universalists across the country to get proximate to those who we view as other. I'm here to tell you that there's not much in this world that makes a person more other than an orange jumpsuit, ankle shackles, and a two-inch thick steel door. Yet, Stevenson called us to be proximate to the otherness and the brokenness and the suffering. We need to get close to it until we can't overlook it anymore. He called us to chip away at the fear and the indifference in our own hearts until we can find common humanity with our incarcerated siblings. Tears welled in my own eyes as I took in his charge to get proximate, to get up close and personal with those who I still treat as other. And then I thought about my guys. I thought about what his charge asks us as Unitarian Universalists to do. Our faith calls us to honor the inherent worth and dignity of each person, and it teaches us of a universal saving love that holds each and every one of us. And these ideas are beautiful and important, but they are shallow and useless if they stay in our heads. If we are to be prophetic in the world, then our message of inherent worthiness and of unconditional love has to be active. It has to take the form of us sacrificing our own discomfort to get up close and personal. It has to take the form of vulnerability and investing in relationships with those people who are different from us, people who we have perversely deluded ourselves into believing are less than us. Our call every day is to stretch open the circle of those we feel capable of loving for the sake of our own hearts. When I think of this process of widening our circle of love, I think it's a little bit like what happens to our bodies when we strain our muscles. Over the 4th of July weekend, I went to visit my best friend in Ithaca, New York. Her cousins have a house on Cayuga Lake, and we spent all of the day out in the sunshine tubing off the back of their motorboat. If you haven't been tubing before, I highly recommend it. You sprawl your body across a blow-up inner tube that's connected by a rope to the back of the motorboat, and you hold on to the handles as hard as you possibly can as the boat zips up and down the lake, doing its best to toss you off, and you hold on until you're so exhausted that you just fly off into the water. It's a lot of fun, 
But when I woke up the next morning, the muscles in my arms and in my shoulders had not forgotten the fun we'd had the day before. You see, when you work your muscles, the fibers tear apart from the unconventional use, and they make you really sore. But what also happens when those fibers are torn apart is that they grow back. They stretch and they grow back and they heal themselves bigger and stronger than they were before. Dead fibers replaced with more vital tissue. What was stretched open made me stronger. And so too are we transformed when we stretch open the walls of the circle of people that we feel able to love. We might feel a deep soreness, a sadness, a fearfulness as the pieces grow back toward one another. But through that stretching and soreness, we become stronger and more loving. We live closer to our values and we are touched by the sweetness of being in new relationships. All of us are gifted with a propensity to expand that circle of those we find lovable. We can grow our circles and deepen our relationships so that they include folks who are incarcerated, the people who I've been working with, but there's not a limit to who we can include in those circles. We can include people with different immigration statuses, people with different abilities, people with different experiences of home. It's my sincere hope that we might each find those people, those beloved and broken people who live outside of our circle of love right now. Let's find them and stretch ourselves through proximity and through relationship until there isn't anybody on the outside. When we get close to those who suffer, to those whose society has decided matter less, we find that our illusion of superiority is false. And that in fact, there is a humanness that connects us across that gaping chasm of difference. I wanna tell you some stories about the men I found on the other side of that gaping chasm of difference in my work at Essex County Correctional Facility this summer. I visit Jason almost every week in his cell in solitary confinement. He's never personally revealed his charges to me, but his co-defendant, who lives a few cell doors down, has filled me in on some of the violent details of his murder charge. Jason knows that he will likely be sentenced to at least 25 years in a federal prison upstate somewhere, if not longer. He's accused of that crime that for so many of us takes him out of the circle of love, the circle of forgiveness and compassion. And he has a lot to be fearful of in the next few months as his trial approaches. But each week when I speak to him, the only concern in his mind is his three young children. He shows me their pictures, two little girls and a boy, all under eight. Each one of them has a name that starts with a J, just like my family. 
and they have a dad that loves them very much. Jason still wants to be a good father, whatever that means as someone likely to be convicted as a murderer. Him loving his children doesn't excuse the despicableness of his crime, but him loving his children is a reminder that he's a human being capable of love, that we too are capable of loving. Kareem is always happy when I come by to visit. He's been on the streets for all of his 35 years and knows how to do two things, how to be in a gang and how to sell heroin. He's rough around the edges, to say the least, and truth be told, he looks like the kind of person I would have crossed the street to avoid passing a couple months before. But one day, I asked him what he would do with his life if he could do anything. And he told me that he would write. And then he read me one of his poems. It's a slam poem, it's really good. His words were poignant and powerful, and his delivery had so much enthusiasm. He lit up, finally able to share that one thing that makes him feel proud of himself. He's creative and thoughtful, and despite my own judgment, he's someone that I was capable of including in my circle of love. Just didn't know it yet. Now Juan, Juan has a huge personality. He's just as, he is just as loud and in your face as a person as his interesting collection of tattoos are that cover almost all of his body. His gregarious personality does not have much of a filter when it comes to the language he chooses to use. He was telling me about his assault charges that he is quite sure are unfounded, and while we spoke, he probably dropped the N-word at least 18 times in the conversation. Now in prison, that word is not uncommon, but it never really loses its knife-like effect on me. As he was telling his story, part of the explanation involved another bad word, the B word, and to my shock and amusement, instead of saying that word with the candor he had been using, he put his hand to the side of his mouth and spelled it out. He whispered it like a secret. And I know him pretty well, and I was surprised by this, so I called him out. I asked him why, why spell that word and say the other so many times? And he looked at me seriously and with a childish shame and discomfort, and he said, I was just trying to show you a little bit of respect today. I felt the stretch right there. This kid with the tattoos and the big mouth and the assault charge had just widened the circle of who I'm capable of loving. Besides these one-on-one -on -one conversations in solitary confinement, a lot of my work is leading faith-sharing groups where the men can speak safely about their lives and their feelings. Durrell walked into my group with the most hollow look in his eyes. I'd never seen someone look so empty. 
it was the week before Father's Day. And as we went around the circle, many of the men shared their sadness about being locked away from their children on Father's Day. And Darrell started to cry as he spoke. A few weeks earlier, his infant son had been killed in a car accident. The air went cold in the room for a moment when he shared this tragedy. And then without any prompting, the other men jumped in and started offering their support. They told him which sergeants he needed to write a complaint to to make sure he got the right mental health care that he needed. And they told him how deeply sorry they were for this loss, a loss they wouldn't wish on their worst enemy. I barely spoke the rest of the hour because everyone else was so eager for a moment, an opportunity to be kind to someone else, someone who was suffering. And as they shared, all of them were relieved from the suffering they experience every day. At the end of the group, Darrell got up and hugged every man in the circle, some strangers, some enemies, and now brothers. Friends, this illusion that we are separate and that any of us might not be worthy of love is just that, an illusion. Each of us longs to love our children. Each of us longs to express our truths and to be heard. Each of us wants to show respect and appreciation. And each of us would step up eagerly to comfort another. I titled this sermon, Children of God, and it is named for the only man whose name I did not change for anonymity. On Fridays, I hold a small group for the men on the protective custody unit. And though it's not true of all of them, this unit holds the reputation because it houses those who are charged with sex crimes and crimes against children, the most vulnerable men in our facility. On my first day, when we went around the circle sharing our names, one man introduced himself as Child of God. Child of God always carries a dog-eared, waterlogged Bible to the group, and he grins when I ask him to read the passages he's been studying this week. Child of God reads from the Bible so incredibly quickly that his words are almost completely indiscernible. Yet as he reads, we all sit quietly, straining a little, but listening carefully to his sacred words. Now, I don't know what first name is printed on the strip of paper inside his plastic barcoded ID bracelet, but I think he just might have the same first name as every man I've worked with this summer and the same first name as every person in our world. His name is Child of God. Their names are Children of God. Our names are Children of God. Let us expand our circles of love, seeing each person in prison or not, guilty or not, making us comfortable or not, as a lovable child of God. Amen, and blessed be.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.